So thanks for coming along tonight for what turned out to be an unexpected but uh, a very timely talk to finish the year with. Um, last time we weren't going to do another talk and last week and now we have. So uh, we have Daniel Pletka here on the topic of how the world has changed after 7 October. Now she's well known to many of us, uh, a distinguished senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, um, teaches Middle East studies at Georgetown University and as a political analyst for NBC News and she's making her first appearance at the Sydney Institute and you're very welcome, thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. I'm going to move this a little bit because I'm not quite this tall as much as I wish I was. Um, thank you, thank you very much. First of all, that's the first time my title has been right today, so I'm delighted, including on Sky News. Um, and thank you to all of you. It's really a, a pleasure. The Sydney Institute does such wonderful work and hosts such terrific people. I'm really honoured to be part of it. So cheers, first of all. I'm standing here. Because let me tell you, if you are a Middle East specialist these days, there is nothing better than standing before an audience with a glass in your hand. Uh, so we have, we have an hour uh, to talk. And what I'm going to try and do is, is speak briefly and then really give over to all of you who are going to speak into the microphone and ask me questions because that's what I enjoy most. I really like hearing what you're interested in. And... Um, I've been asked to talk a little bit about what I know, so I'm not going to talk about how the world has changed in that very sort of nice generic title. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about American politics. Um, I live in Washington and I have for almost 40 years, although hopefully you can hear that I come from Australia, but not from Sydney. And, um, and then we can chat about whatever you'd like. The Middle East is my area of specialty. I know it well. I love it dearly. Um, it is an avocation and a vocation, but I also live in Washington, and politics is the name of the game. So you asked me a good question right before we, uh, we exchanged microphone tips, and that was, was Joe Biden just speaking off the cuff today? or have things changed? So one of the things that I will say to you is that over, over the last two and a half years since Joe Biden has been president, and uh, truth in advertising, I'm not a Democrat. Uh, I'm a small d Democrat. I'm not a big d Democrat. Um, so you should understand my perspective. Um, I would have told you on October 6th that the reaction to a Hamas attack on Israel sponsored by, backed by Iran, would not have been the reaction that the Biden administration had. And for that, I give full credit to Joe Biden. Now, one of the things you heard on my resume is that I worked at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee back in the day, and uh, Joe Biden was variously our chairman and what's called our ranking member, our lead minority person. So I've known the man for 30 years. And he is um, what I call an old school Democrat. The Democratic Party was the bastion of pro-Israel sentiment in the United States for many, many years until probably the last 15, 20. And we can talk about that if you'd like and what's happened. But he is of that old school. And when I look at his administration, I think of 
the people who uh, populate the most important positions, and they are all alumni of the Obama administration. So to understand the foreign policy of the Biden administration, you really need to do no more than look back at the Obama administration. Okay? That's who these guys are. Now, from our perspective, who's that? Okay. Obama couldn't stand the Israelis. He didn't like Bibi, but the honest answer is he really didn't like Israel. A lot of American presidents, Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush, were animated by sentiment, right? A real feeling that Israel was the underdog. They came back from behind. They represented everything that America loves, small, doughty democracy standing up to evil, tyrannical enemies and defeating them, right? That's our story, that's their story. And particularly after 1967, that really was a, a strong vein in American politics. Barack Obama was the next generation from that. He really didn't, wasn't interested in that history, didn't care about it, didn't like, didn't like them, didn't think the Middle East was worth an investment, and also thought that everything about American foreign policy for the last 50 years was probably backwards. We had seen everything through the prism of Israel. We're going to be on television with this, and I'm standing here with my glass. Hello, everybody. Um, I just thought about that. But everything had been seen through the prism of Israel and the Sunni Arab countries, right? Energy, Saudi Arabia, remember FDR on the boat with King Abdulaziz, right? That's the American perspective. And Barack Obama came in and he said to himself, you really got this all wrong. And the Middle East is kind of a cesspool and nothing has gone our way. And maybe it's because you've thought of it wrong. Maybe you shouldn't be looking at the Middle East through the prism of Israel and the Sunnis. Maybe you should be looking at, at the Middle East through the prism of Iran and the Shia. It's a hyper-intellectualized idea. It's the kind of thing that you do if you spend a lot of time in university and you don't spend a lot of time in the real world. That's fine. That's fine. You know something? When you say American Middle East policy has not been a shining success, you're not speaking incorrectly. So in any case, he uh, obviously was the author and the believer in the Iran nuclear deal. We can talk about that if you'd like. I'm sure you can guess what I think about this. But nonetheless, all of the people who came out of his administration, including the current president of the United States, believed that that was the greatest foreign policy accomplishment of the Obama years. And that Trump ruined it, screwed it up, betrayed it. It was the best deal you could have. It's the one that stopped the Iranians from having a nuclear weapon. And this was a disaster. Okay. So that's who they are. Okay. But in addition, since February, right, our inauguration is on January 20th, since February of 2021, when Joe Biden took over from Barack Obama, we have completely upended our foreign policy. We have stopped imposing sanctions on Iran. We have allowed Iran to recoup, coup, 85, 87 to 95 billion American dollars in additional oil revenues. It's one of the reasons why I get less excited about the 6 billion in Qatar than some of my colleagues. Um, through illegal oil sales that are sanctionable under US law, mostly to China by Iran. Okay? 
Um, if you look at the record, and I have very closely, what you see is that there are human rights sanctions, there are some terrorism sanctions, but there are very few oil sanctions that are imposed by the Biden administration. They drop like this, okay? And Iran makes all this money. Now, this is a message to the Iranians, right? We want to do business with you. We're opening things up. We're letting you get some money because maybe you're going to come back into the deal. Well, of course, the Iranians were having none of it, and it ended up not happening. We can talk about some of the more of the signals that the Biden administration sent to Iran, but long story short, this was the administration that if you had asked me on October 6th what they were going to do if the Iranians sponsored a massive attack on Israel by one of their terrorist proxies, they would have sort of, you know, deplorable, terrible, loss of life, awful, but, you know, context, you know, if you were the president of UPenn, you would have been writing a good statement for them. Um, and I hope everybody gets that <laughs> context. Um, and that's not what happened. And the main reason why is because of Joe Biden. And again, I didn't vote for him. I don't think he's the smartest man in the world, the sharpest tool in the shed, the brightest bulb in the chandelier. We could go on here. But um, he was having none of it. He is, as he says, I'm a Zionist. And he doesn't say it with any shame, with any of that left-wing university sort of, <gasps> You know, but, I mean, of course, you know, well, yes, but. No, I support the State of Israel. And I believe that in his administration, where you see policy after policy that is dictated by his Obama staff, including the so slow rolling, and I mean genuinely slow rolling, of support for Ukraine, including the lack of a resolute policy towards Russia, including the lack of a strong policy towards China, including the mitigation of all the serious messages that were sent, Pache, Donald Trump, during that time to the Iranians, he actually is the author of this. In other words, he stood, <laughs> uh, to use the William F. Buckley phrase, stood athwart history and said, stop. I'm with them. And that lasted um, until very recently. Um, quietly, there has been huge pressure. The Democratic Party of Joe Biden from 1972 when he was elected um, to 1992 when I met him first to now is not the Democratic Party. We in America know. And I know this is a phenomenon that's familiar to everybody because it's happened to every left-wing party in the world, okay? And, you know, you can use the words you want. You can use wokeness, you can use, I, I, I am not gonna embrace those because it, it doesn't serve. Um, but that's not his party. So he's standing atop a party in which the base, our beloved expression, doesn't really agree with him about Israel policy. Um, we have an election next year. I'm sure most of you haven't focused on that fact, but we do. And it's a pretty fraught election. And guess what? Over the last two months, Joe Biden has lost 10 points with his base over this. Okay. Now, I don't know how many of you are in politics. Um, hopefully none of you. But losing 10 points with your base is not a good thing. And so you've got, you're surrounded by all these people who 
disagree ideologically with your policy, want you to get re-elected because you are stopping the world from ending and dictatorship in our time to be reinstated with Donald Trump, and facing the prospect that you're gonna lose money, you're gonna lose Michigan, you're gonna lose a lot, right? You've already lost the New York Times and the Washington Post. Um, another story I'm happy to talk about. But you are faced with a serious political threat. Quietly, the team in the White House started to say to the Israelis, we're with you, but come on, hurry it up. Slow it down, fewer airstrikes, more door-to-door -door fighting. Yeah, we know more of you are going to die, but then again, we can stick with you longer if more of you die. And you've seen those numbers accelerate, right? I think 11 were killed uh, in the last 24 hours, 11 IDF soldiers. That's a lot for a country the size of Israel. Um, so the numbers are going up, Palestinian deaths are going up, and yes, Hamas, the Ministry of Health is lies, underestimates, lies, on the other hand, those numbers are in the thousands, and the, not the single thousands. Um, and so the pressure is building, right? You're getting letters, protest, internal dissent memos in the Department of State from hundreds of foreign service officers saying you're doing the wrong thing, I don't support you, I'm against you, I can't believe you're doing this. <laughs> Interns, I said to Walt from Ajax just an hour ago, we were lamenting generational issues as people, when uh, people of our age get together, we do, and uh, talking about the intern who had the temerity to, despite having gotten this fabulous, fabulous internship working in the White House, writes to the President of the United States, I don't care whether it's Mickey Mouse, and says, I don't agree with your policy about the West Bank and Gaza. It's like, who the hell do you think you are? What happened? But in any case, that's an aside. But this is, these are the pressures that are, that are building. Plus, you've got the United Nations, and you've got your own Obama people, and you've got your base, and you've got your constituency. And remember, somebody asked me this question uh, at lunch today. I think it was really important. Why is Joe Biden more responsive about the West Bank and Gaza and Palestine to his constituency and the Republicans don't have to worry about it as much? And the answer is because they're two very different parties. Okay? The Republican Party, for good and for ill, is a very grassroots party now. Right? It's a party of middle America. It's a party of the working class, non-college educated white people and minorities increasingly. The Democratic Party is a party of coastal elites and university graduates, okay? You know what they think because you read the newspaper in Australia and it's the same thing, right? That's who, that's who Albanese is listening to when he does the wrong thing with Canada and New Zealand because when Canada and New Zealand called, how can you not say yes? And uh, did the wrong thing with his foreign ministry and voted the wrong way at the United Nations because that's their constituency as well. Um, and so the base of the Democratic Party is very important and you've got an election and winning an election is about, not my words, but the words of many people I know, about the future of democracy in America. You're gonna have to break a few eggs. Yeah, you believe in Israel, you believe in their right to defend yourself. You are a Zionist. You don't like Bibi, but you're a Zionist. But you've got to win the election because this is more important. This is existential. Right? So the pressure is building, and I can't tell you when it's going to break, but I can tell you in the last 24 hours you saw the evidence of it.
right? That Joe Biden started changing his tune. This is what I said to Bibi, you gotta minimize casualties, you gotta get out, okay? That's only going to be stronger. Somebody asked me, how's that gonna be affected? You know, how are they gonna do that? And there are a lot of ways. First of all, the Americans don't have to do it themselves. They can just, I care what Antonio Guterres says. <laughs> Sorry, I don't wanna say anything bad, but uh, I can let uh, lesser European allies uh, speak out. I can let the United Nations and UNRWA and UNOCHA and UNHCR and every other UN that I, as an American, pay the vast mass of the financing for um, speak out. I can stop shipping weaponry to you faster. I can stop holding the line against people who hate you. Um, all the while, you know, standing strongly against anti-Semitism, for example. And so that is what the future looks like. And that's why Israel is on the clock. And they know it. I didn't like it. Um, this is not a digression. I didn't like it when Biden said, do not do the stupid things that we did after 9-11, in large part because I don't know what he thought he was talking about. Um, no, I, I'm not being facetious. Um, I actually don't know what he thought he was talking about, but I, I think that there's a, a, a vein of truth in that. The Israelis have still not gotten beyond the horror. And it's not vengeance. It's the need to deal with the people who did the worst things you can imagine and worse. Right? Worse. I've deliberately not watched the footage from October 7th but everybody I know who has, has been changed. And I say that not in a light Hollywood way. I mean, these are things you can't forget, right? These are the things that, that Dwight Eisenhower walked into concentration camps and could not believe. What is the phrase? The inhumanity of man to man. So, um, so I think the Israelis haven't thought forward enough. And it's gonna be very hard for them to do so because there are no easy answers. There's no, there's no, it's not like the peace process, right? We could all sit down and sort out the peace process in this room because we all know what the end looks like, right? It's just a question of how we get from here to there. This is not like that. This is not an end game that is obvious to any of us. And while there are bureaucrats and peace processors and apparatchiks who think they know exactly how to handle this, because we'll just do what we always did, because that worked so well, right? Because that led to October 7th, but you know, whatever. Um, facts never can trump bureaucracy in the minds of some people. But um, it's not clear what to do next. But I'll say this, if the Israelis do not take the reins in answering this question, it will be answered for them. And they don't want to, because they don't know what the answer is, and because they can't figure out how they're gonna be able to do the things they need to do that they perceive they will be needed, will be needed in the aftermath in Gaza, and at the same time satisfy the international community, right? And be an answer to the question, the eternal question of Palestine. Um, they don't know what it is. I, I don't know what it is. I have ideas that um, not everybody agrees with, but 
I have ideas. The Israelis need to own this. They need to be forward-leaning, and they're not at all. Um, because they're, they're still caught in the moment. And you understand that. There are 120, 130 hostages still there, um, many dead, some alive, and they want them back. They want to kill everybody who ever thought that what happened on October 7th was a good idea and financed it and supported it and paid for it. And I'm with them 150%. But um, if they do not take the initiative within the coming months, and there are some indications that they've started to have these discussions with foreign governments, if they do not take the initiative within the coming months, the initiative will be taken for them, as it has been over the last 50 years. 55, wow. Jesus, how many years is this since 1967? Uh, we won't say that because that would remind me how old I am. But in any case, um, those are the issues. Uh, I'm happy to talk about Iran. I'm happy to talk about what's wrong with the Palestinian Authority. I'm happy to talk about Hezbollah. I'm happy to talk about the Hamas leadership. I'm really happy to talk about how dreadful Qatar is. I'm happy to talk about how much I dislike the Albanese government right now. I'm happy to talk about, I can't talk about New Zealand because I can't remember who's in charge there, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> Sorry, I can't help swiping at New Zealand there for me. I, you know, I, I'm partly Australian, so I have this antipathy towards New Zealand that I got from my parents, and then I'm American, so I have this antipathy towards Canada that I got from Canada being there. And so I analogize them all the time, and I really don't care what happens in Canada, and I really just don't care what happens in New Zealand. And yes, I know that's on the air, and I probably can't go to Canada or New Zealand ever again. But never mind, why don't I pass these things on to you? You ask good, smart questions, and I will try to be concise. Yes? Okay, thank you for that. Okay. Um, and I'm going to start back with my one. Okay. Okay. Make sure I've got my microphone. And I'm um, sorry, it's a little warm in here, so. Yes, it is. Yes, we it have is. to turn the coolers off because they make a lot of noise. Yeah. So, sorry about that. No worries. I've just been complaining about it today, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, you spoke about the Obama administration, and you spoke about President Biden. Then, of course, Donald Trump was president for four years. We know what his attitude to Iran was. What was his attitude to Israel? And I know it's a long time to the next election, but if, if President Trump gets re-elected, yeah. what would a Trump administration be like, do you think, in a long time away, in a political sense? Um, it's a great question. Um, I... I um I spent a lot of time talking about Donald Trump when he was president. And um, the one statement that we always could agree on, I have a podcast and I have a, a co-host who's a little bit more um, the, tolerant of Trump than I am. Um, and we always agreed that if only the Trump administration had been on mute, we would have really been very comfortable with the policies because the policies were good. Um, the talking was less good. Here's the problem from my perspective. Um, first of all, you have the intervention of January 6th, which was hugely discrediting, and I don't think you can underestimate that, and the notion that the election was stolen, which really is actually an assault on, it is an assault on our democratic ideas and ideals and our institutions. Um, the bigger problem, even if you're just a single issue voter, is I don't think Donald Trump gives a damn about Israel. Um, I don't think he gives a damn about anything except his own grievances. 
And as a result, when you have somebody without any principles, even principles you disagree with firmly, you have no lodestar. You have no ability to judge what it is he's going to do. Right? So did he do Israel because, you know, Jared and Ivanka? Or did he do it because I love Bibi or because of the orb? Or uh, none of these things are, um, are guides in principle to why you stand with a particular country or not. And I don't think another problem is that um, there were a lot of good people in the Trump administration and there were a lot of idiots in the Trump administration. That's true for any administration. Now he is so persona non grata that most serious people, um, even serious people I don't agree with, will not be part of it. And that adult supervision, if I can be a little bit condescending, is critical. So we're really, in America, in an absolutely terrible, terrible place in which we have to choose between somebody who is too old to be president and it has a vice president who um, doesn't know what day of the week it is and, um, and another leader who really doesn't believe in our institutions and is a complete bloody you know, uh, 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 surprise of what may, the future may hold. So a, a big challenge. Daniel, what do you think of the commentary that uh, I've read about in uh, publications like the New York Times that um, Mr. Netanyahu wanted a, a, a relatively strong Hamas to, as a counterweight to the uh, Palestinian Authority and the thinking was, as I understand it, that that would be, uh, the result would be to kick off uh, the uh, reality of a two-state solution so far into the future that you would never see it. There's an element of truth in that and an element of really nasty cynicism in that. Um, the New York Times is not where I get my analysis of almost anything. Restaurant reviews are okay. Um, I mean that. Um, and I still subscribe, but it's only for the games uh, <laughs> and, the cook and the cooking. Um, so there's no question that the Israelis over the years have backed opposition to Fatah, to the PLO, and that they have believed, much as we have in places like Iraq, that they are more skilled at playing the political game, and I'll, I'll, I'll boost you, and I'll push you down, and I'll do this with you. And that, that game with Hamas has been going on for uh, 15 years, more, 16 years. Um, in which the Israelis uh, um, crush Gaza, which they have, um, and then allow a little relief from the Qataris. You know? um, that, that was a very cynical and a very mistaken game, and they underestimated their enemy very, very seriously. You should never have contempt for your enemy. Um, never, ever. Um, and they do. And that led not only to October 7th, and I'm not denying agency to Hamas or Iran or any of the individuals involved, but Israeli government policy was wrong, um, mistaken, and really fatally so. Uh, but this isn't just Bibi. I mean, Shimon Peres was a big part of this, right? Um, you know, every Israeli government has played this game. Um, and it's 
a bad one and a mistaken one and a stupid one, to my mind. Do I think that this was with a view to pushing off a Palestinian? No, of course not. It was just tactical, uh, you know, uh, and, and short-sighted. Um, and I see this in Lebanon with Israeli policy, and I see this in Syria. I see this with Israelis, Israel's partnership with the Chinese over the years, which has been anathema morally and politically and strategically to me. Um, it's partnership with Putin, which has been anathema for all the same reasons, right? You know, uh, the, the Brits love that expression, too, too clever by half. There's an element of that. Um, that doesn't exonerate anybody who was involved in any of the things, but it's a big problem. And um, I think the Commission of Inquiry, I hope, will shed some light on that. Um, was there a second part to your question? No, was that it? Well, do you think a two-state solution is now just a dream that the government realized? Look. Um, I will say the simple, easy sentence that you uh, that everybody needs to understand because it is God's truth. Okay, there will be a two-state solution when Israel has a partner for peace. It's easy. Danielle, thank you. My thoughts entirely. We can technically get rid of Hamas, destroy them, and Hezbollah and the Houthis and a whole heap of others, the Iranian Ayatollahs are still in existence using everybody they can possibly can use to yeah. continue with their philosophy of destroying Israel. Are there even any avenues that is reasonable to explore whether there are any avenues that the international democratic, liberal democratic community can use uh, from fairly savage ultimatums to get try and get Iran to stop this sort of behavior and uh, Iranian artillery. Sorry, I correct that. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, I, I, you know, continuing. So that's a great question. Um, and the answer is there are things we can do, but not to get this regime to stop that. This regime is synonymous with that policy. This is the heart of their foreign policy the annihilation of the State of Israel, the uh, sponsorship of their proxies, and the creation of an axis of what they call resistance um, throughout the region that extends their hegemony. So what's necessary is to remove the regime if you're going to get rid of Hamas 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, Hezbollah 2.0, 3.0, the Houthis, the Hashtashaybi. There's a lot of H's in this, but um, I'm always struck by that. But, um, but yeah, it's the regime. And until there is a decision that the regime has to go, there's not going to be an end to what we saw on October 7th and what we see again and again everywhere else in smaller iterations. Yes, um, I'm rather <coughs> interested to see uh, whether the nuclear component that Israel presumably has undeclared or whatever is likely to be uh, come into play at some point here because you know if they're under th that sort of threat you know what options um, it's a very different topic 
um, and a very interesting one because nuclear deterrence is something that we haven't really talked about very seriously since the end of the Soviet Union. Um, but nuclear power really is only a deterrent. Once you use it, you're done, right? Um, and um, I don't think that the Jewish state, the only Jewish state in the world, wants to be the first uh, in the post-Hiroshima and Nagasaki universe to use nuclear weapons. That is their trump card, but I don't see a scenario in which they use it unless the, exist <coughs> the existence of the State of Israel is in imminent danger. Um, and that's the problem. I mean, this is this is the problem with deterrence and nuclear deterrence. It used to be that we had mutually assured destruction, right? We had the we you know we had the Soviets, the Soviet Union, we had us, and then we had the the other nuclear powers. Now we've got everybody. You know, we've got the Pakistanis, we've got the you know, I mean, the Saudis that say that they're going to get nuclear weapons. We've got the Israelis, we've got the Indians, we've got we got everybody. So, uh, um, my guess is, as Israel thinks about its nuclear calculus. That is something it does when it is in imminent risk. And I um, don't think um, that the Iranian regime is interested in sacrificing itself in order to destroy the state of Israel. Not only don't I think that, I would go further and say I have pretty solid ontological certitude, as one of our commentators used to say, that that's not the case. Because you can see it now. They're not doing that. Uh, in 2022, the latest outbreak of uh, civil unrest in Iran around the Masa Amini um, murder by the morality police uh, occurred and there's been speculation with every round of that sort of unrest that this might be it. D do we have any insight, given what you've said about your knowledge of Iran, about what the state of... Uh, the society is there and about, you know, its opposition to it, the leadership of that uh, uh, Islamic uh, Republic. Iran is a police state. Of Back of the room. Iran is a police state to you too. They are um, in control of everything. Right? There are um, little stovepipes that allow... Um, and they are, you know what? <laughs> the Iranians are good at what they do. They are good at being the Islamic Republic of Iran. They are good at sponsoring terrorism. They are good at skirting responsibility. They are good at killing their own people. And they are good at not paying the price for that. And we have no reason to believe that the Iranian regime could be overthrown by Democrats inside Iran. I think there are other questions about whether there are other forces inside Iran that we know less about and understand less about, but um, I think the prospect of a color revolution, if we can call it that, um, in Iran, uh, unfortunately, um, is very low unless this becomes a priority for us. It could become a priority for us, but it isn't right now. That said, um, taking what you said about Iran, and I agree with it immensely, and go back to the 30s, we had this notion that we could talk our way to peace. 
And then we found we had to bomb our way to peace and that certain people had to be annihilated on their way to peace. Now we seem to be approaching a similar sort of instability. It's beyond Israel. So how does Israel, and it's interesting, I've been to Israel a number of times, it's a modern society, it's a prosperous society, it's no longer that old lefty kibbutz society. No. Tel Aviv could be further from the south that of Israel than anything. Um, so people like you read Haretz, Haretz, or I can't pronounce the newspaper, and you've got this ongoing debate in a democratic society. You've got articles in that newspaper now that challenge the government that's fighting a war. And you think from Australia, wow, how can a government fight a war when its intellectuals are fighting them in a way? Can a de democratic civilization stand against tyranny? And can we work out how to do it. If we're having these discussions, that's fine. But in the last analysis, as we found out in 1939, you have to raise the troops. So where do we go in this? It's really existential for all of us, not just Israel. It's, it's a wonderful question. And, and I think for those of us who pay attention to the world, we look at you know, not just Israel, but we look at what China is doing in the South China Sea. We look at what the Russians are doing in Ukraine. And not just that, we look at the collapse of Africa, the spread of ISIS and Al-Qaeda in Africa, which we don't talk about ever at all. But if I showed you a map, you would be gobsmacked at how they have taken territory and governance throughout Africa. You look at the collapse of governments, the, the spread of sort of 1970s-style left-wing Marxism in Latin America again. You look at the divisions in Europe and you say to yourself, right, I feel like I'm in 1935. Um, and people are looking to, you know, oh, well, don't we just need a strong man to answer these questions for us? And you know what? I I'll say this. Um, I I'm not a glass half full girl ever, uh, as my family will attest. But um, actually, and I, and I have nothing but, if I can delve into domestic politics for a second, contempt for Israel's uh, people who are demonstrating against judicial reforms. The judiciary needs reforms. It is untethered to any small d democratic ideas. But we're the people who win. We are always the people who win. It doesn't matter. Hitler, Stalin, Lenin, every single one of them, even China, we win. You know why? We're better. And I say this to people um, who are like, you know, how can you, how can you um, talk about, you know, the need to do these things in Iraq or Iran or, you know, it's so hegemonistic and you're just cultural imperialism. And I stop and I say, so what is it you don't believe in? Is it religious freedom? Is it women's rights? Is it political freedom? Is it press freedom? Is it democracy? Human rights. What don't you believe in? Oh no, we believe in all those things. Yes, but you know, you can't force them. And the answer is, you can't force them, but you can stand up and tell everybody, actually, we are better. Actually, we are better than Xi Jinping. We are better than Ayatollah Khamenei. We are better than Hamas, we are better than Lebanon, we are better than Putin, we are better than all of these people. And that's not cultural imperialism. And by the way, history 
is on our side every single time. And sometimes you force us to get to, to kill you. Sometimes you force us to bomb Dresden or Hiroshima or Nagasaki. Sometimes you push us too far and we have to stand up and do things that are against our core values in order to defeat a greater enemy. But guess what? If you look at the tide of history, not the arc that Obama loved, but the tide of history, it is 100% on our side. And that's why I never hesitate in these environments to stand up for the things I believe in. You know, drop dead. You want me to stand up for the Ayatollahs? You want me to say that the Uyghurs shouldn't be in, should be in concentration camps? No. I'm going to say that forever. And one final little asterisk for everybody, and I know we're coming close to the end of our time, but remember, we idealize the past. Oh, if only we could come back to the consensus of World War II. If only we could have our foreign policy, this we hear in America all the time, stop at the water's edge. That's rubbish. Okay? Rubbish. Look at the press. Look at the New York Times. Look at the Washington Post throughout World War II. Why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? Are we really making the right decision? What's happening? Don't care about the concentration camps. Don't care about this. There was an article that I always mentioned from 1946 on the cover of Life magazine, the most important magazine that most of America read, that was written by John Dos Passos, a hugely important American intellectual that was like, America is screwing up everything it won in World War II and its governance of Germany. I feel pretty good. I don't know about John Dos Passos. So, you know, yes, of course. Minute to minute, it sucks. The fight is awful. Terrible people are in charge. But we, we win. We're better. Our values are better. Our government is better. Our people are better. Our papers, our shitty papers, are better. Everything. And if you just remember that, you can get through harder times, I think. I should have said earlier, thanks to the Australian, Israel and Jewish Affairs Council for bringing our guests here tonight. Um, and we're very grateful for them and we're very grateful for you, to you for a great performance. Thank you. Thank you so much.